1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
5: Hello, and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. Coming up in this podcast...
6: Even Stalin had to acknowledge that he was one of the greatest adventures or one of the greatest operations which the world has ever seen.
5: Anthony Beaver, on D-Day. And...
4: It's not quite, I got this from a man down the pub, but it's the medieval
5: equivalent there. Helen J Nicholson describes the strength of evidence against the Templars in their heresy trial 800 years ago. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. But first, let me hand you over to our features editor, Rob Atar.
3: Yes, for this issue of the magazine, I've done an interview with Anthony Beaver, the world's best-selling military historian. It's all about his new book on D-Day and the battle for Normandy. Here's a selection of that interview, where Anthony talks about how he went about writing the book, the continuing fascination of D-Day, and how he hopes to defeat pro-Hitler conspiracy theorists. And something i found quite interesting is that the way you researched the book was mm-hmm. that I read that you tried to research as much as possible using contemporary sources. Yeah. How did that affect the writing of the book?
6: I think one of the problems of, if you like, the oral history fashion, which has come mm. about, really started, I suppose, in roughly around the 1980s, is that it's great if you're just talking about contemporary documents like, say, letters or particularly diaries, which is the best of a lot. But interviews with old soldiers are always going to be should we say, less dependable. Partly because, not that they are in any way being deliberately dishonest, but partly because they have filtered their own experiences through what they have read since and what they have discussed with other people. So it's, it's, should we say, slightly contaminated material, not for any fault of theirs. And also a question of memory. I mean, we know how unreliable human memory is in many ways. The importance, for example, of the American documents, and this was fantastic that the Americans had the resources and the foresight to do it, was that they had these teams of of combat historians who went in with the troops and in to interview the troops as they were coming out of battle very soon afterwards mm. when their memories were still fresh. This has been a resource which has been around for a long time but has actually really hardly been used at all by historians which I find astonishing. But anyway, the official historians, American historians were, I think, outstandingly good Use this as background material, but they never quoted from any, any of it. So that was a huge resource. Then also, for example, interviews with senior commanders done by Forrest Pogue. All the papers are in the um, American War College archive in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And lots of other interviews done very soon afterwards create a sort of, if you like, a huge body of material. And there's no need, in fact, to go to interviews with soldiers, And veterans 50 years, 60 years now it's almost 70 years 65 years after the event.
3: Do you think that gives your book a particular immediacy that other accounts might lack?
6: I don't know, I can't sort of judge about that, I hope it does I think that it's important that one does go back to the official records and, if you like, the diaries of the time. I mean, the other advantage is, and I think it's very striking in some ways, and thank God for me, you know, there has not been a major history of the Battle of Normandy for over 20 years now. Surprising. Which, is, which is very yeah. surprising, I think. I mean, there have been lots of books on Normandy on different aspects, but not sort of a, a big general one. I mean, not since the major ones of Max Hastings, Carlo D'Este, John Keegan, were all back in the early 80s. But during that time, since then, a huge amount has built up in archives. When people have left collections of letters and diaries, and in France, too, I mean, the Memorial de Caen has got the most fantastic archive. I went over there thinking I'd be able to do the whole thing in two weeks, and I found I (laughs) was actually having to commute there from Kent, you know, on a regular basis, simply to get through it all. There was so much good stuff. Obviously, you know, the Archives des have also got a lot, but nothing quite as much as that. So, um, yes, I think you do need to go back to original sources wherever you possibly can, rather than to sort of rely on either secondary sources or particularly sort of, if you like, memoirs long after the event.
3: Did you actually visit the landing beaches when you were writing the book?
6: Oh, yes. I think it's terribly important to have an idea of the terrain because you can only sort of see, for example, at Omaha. You've got to stand yeah. on that beach at Omaha and see what they were facing in terms of the bluffs in front, the cliffs around the side, in particular Pointe du Hoc, where the rangers were scaling, to appreciate it. Some places, obviously, things have changed. Uh, but, I mean, you can still get a pretty clear idea. You also need to be able to see, for example, from Operation Goodwood, the railing ground gently rising up to the Burgibus Ridge, mm. where the 1st SS Panzer Division the standard of Hitler were, and were able, with their 88s and all the rest of it, to be able to knock out the British tanks at very long range. Is there much
3: physical evidence of the battle still around in Normandy?
6: Yeah, obviously, most of the destroyed buildings, of course, have all been rebuilt. Or, oh, Of course, apart from a little bit in the centre, it's unrecognisable from that time. But, uh, well, you certainly see, if you like, the evidence in terms of the cemeteries, the memorials everywhere... And of course, the museums. I mean, um, I think Normandy must have more museums per square mile than almost any area of any country in the world, really. And I mean, it is astonishing the fascination in normandy not just from british and americans but i mean from many other countries you can see that by all the registration plaques of different cars in the car parks Mm. and so forth normandy is still an epic story which i think seems to fascinate many many generations obviously you know parents bringing children over to normandy and see the beaches it still seems to be a very major part of people's lives
3: what do you think explains this fascination with d-day that we still have today
6: I think the fascination with D-Day is easily explained by the sheer scale, the sheer ambition of the invasion itself. I mean, even though Stalin was bitter about British failure to launch a second front earlier on, even Stalin had to acknowledge that it was one of the greatest adventures or one of the greatest operations which the world has ever seen, and there's no doubt about it, when one looks at the scale of the naval, the aircraft and the landing of um, so many thousands of troops all in one day on the shores of uh, an enemy country, an enemy-occupied country. Having crossed a very large channel to get there uh, is unprecedented in history and I think that that is why people are so fascinated by it. And of course if it had gone wrong, the disaster, as even Field Marshal Brooke feared on the eve of the invasion, would have been simply appalling. Any other thing I might add, one of the reasons which I I think is important for doing the book now is actually the growth of neo-Nazi conspiracy theories about the Battle for Normandy, which has grown up. And that really does need to be met head on. I mean, it is astonishing how influential it can sometimes be. There have even been one or two British historians who somehow started to swallow them. Basically, the Nazi version is that this was the great stab in the back of the Second World War, that they equated almost with 1918 stab in the back when it was the Jews and the Bolsheviks who uh, destroyed the German army. As far as they're concerned, this was the aristocrats and general staff officers who sabotaged the German defence of Normandy. The chief hate figure, of course, is uh, General Lieutenant um, Hans Speidel, who was Rommel's chief of staff, who was obviously one of the major figures in the 20th of July plot. But they have tried to ascribe every German mistake to Speidel and others, deliberately acting treasonously against the uh, Wehrmacht, and that's a load of rubbish. I mean, they tried to say that um, orders were issued to the flak batteries not to fire at the aircraft. Rubbish, I mean, as the British and Americans found. But Speidel even sort of sent the panzer divisions in the wrong direction, or held them up, and uh, things like that. This is to try to save uh, Hitler from responsibility because he didn't make up his mind until uh, the late afternoon of the 6th of June. They even feel that because of the weather when uh, General Dolman organised the Kriegsspiel, the um, war exercise in Rennes for the divisional commanders and that they were away from their command when the assault came in, that must have been treason too. It's unbelievable the obsessive way in which many of these websites in Germany particularly go in for this idea that we would have won in Normandy if it hadn't been for the traitors. So uh, I think it is quite important that this one is, is severely knocked on the head.
3: Especially when you think of the weight of numbers and material on the Allied side. The fact they won in the end isn't that surprising, really, is it? uh,
6: No, it's not. But the, there's always going to be, I'm afraid, the Nazi thing, that we were betrayed, otherwise we would have won. And our glorious Führer would have uh, been master of the world if it hadn't been for traitors amongst the generals and so forth. This is applied slightly yeah. to the Eastern Front as well, but the real conspiracy theories are all aimed, in fact, at,
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
2: Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
5: That was Anthony Bieber. His book, D-Day, The Battle for Normandy, is published now by Viking. Read more from this interview in the June issue of the magazine, including Beavers' controversial assertion that the bombing of Conn was close to a war crime. You can buy the magazine in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60, but even better, you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas, so go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details on that. Now we move on to the Trial of the Templars, which is our cover feature this month. Helen J. Nicholson, a medievalist at Cardiff University, has been investigating the early 14th century trial of the military order, with specific focus on what happened in the British Isles. So Helen, uh, you're going to take us back to, uh, to around about the, the turn of the 14th century, um, and we're going to talk about the Trial of the Templars. Who were the
4: Templars and why, why
5: were they being put on
4: trial? The Templars were a military religious institution established in Jerusalem in about 1120 and their original purpose was to defend pilgrims on their way to the holy places in Palestine and to defend the territories that had been conquered or reconquered according to the crusaders by the European Christians during the first crusade and just afterwards. They were very successful until the late 13th century when due to the reunification of Islam, the position of the christians from europe in palestine and syria rapidly became worthy were surrounded by hostile forces and there wasn't the interest in europe in the crusades at that point due to various political upheavals in europe which meant people were fighting wars in europe and not coming to the east to help with the crusades anymore
5: so so let's get on to, to the trial then because it's very curious isn't it
4: a number of kings seem to have decided that the Templars were never going to succeed in organising another crusade, as they said they were trying to. The Templars had a lot of land, and this could be more beneficially used. So in August 1307, the King of Portugal brought a legal case against the Templars in Portugal, which said, my ancestors gave you these castles to fight against Islam on my borders. You're not fighting Islam anymore. I'd like my castles back, please. And then in September 1307, the King of France sends a message to his officers and his regions saying "These te- the Templars have been accused of these heretical crimes and they should all be arrested. Now, there were always accusations against big institutions in the Middle Ages as they are now, and normally they came to nothing. But in this particular case, it seems that Three individuals who had grudges against the Templars for various reasons had taken their grudges to the King of France and said the Templars are guilty of um, denying Christ, spitting on the cross, venerating an idol head, um, and committing sodomy with each other. And as they've completely denied the whole Christian religion, that's why they've been losing battles in the East, that's why we've lost all this territory and they should be investigated. And when you find them guilty of heresy, can I have some of their land, please?
5: Okay. So let's take it over the channel now, because the feature you've written for for the magazine is, uh, is the subject of your current research project, which is all about what happened to the Templars who were... Uh, in Britain and the trial that was conducted against them. You've you've flagged it up as a a curiously British affair.
4: Yes, there had never been any serious cases of heresy in the British Isles. The bishops who were given responsibility for investigating the affair weren't terribly excited. Of course, they'd been working alongside the Templars, as as had the King's officials, and they must have known that they hadn't been up to anything suspicious. In theory, the Templars' houses were private, but in practice, the testimonies that are given during the trial in the British Isles indicate that anyone could walk into a Templars' house any hour of the day and night and demand lodging, mm. or walk into the chapel and expect to be able to pray in the church. If anything strange had been going on, these people would have known about it. So there seems to be definitely cynicism and yet a recognition that the Pope is not going to let them get off with this. They've got to do something, but as slowly and as unwillingly as possible. Mm. As in, we've got to tick the boxes here, but oh no. More demands from Rome, oh dear.
5: So, so what happened?
4: Well, initially, the King of England, Edward II, the son of the famous Edward I, who conquered Wales and tried to conquer Scotland. Edward II, unusually for him, s- stood up and said, I'm not going to do this. Edward is not known for standing up against people. But on this occasion, he said, I deny the Templars are guilty of heresy. They have always served the King of England well. Mm. And he wrote to his relatives abroad and he said, we must stop this. It's quite obviously untrue.
5: Mm. It's quite surprising, actually, though, isn't it? Because Edward II, we do see as, as, a, as a very weak king normally, don't we, yeah?
4: Yes, and yet here he quite clearly, when pushed, when he believed, believed, believed in something, he could stand up for himself. And yet he immediately hit a problem, mm. or more than one problem. One was that he was engaged to be married to the king of France's daughter, Isabel. And if he wants to keep that alliance and maintain the peaceful position... In France, because he still holds some lands in France, which are subject to the King of France, and if he breaks his alliance, there's going to be another war. If he wants to maintain that alliance, he's got to go ahead with the wedding. So he's got to arrest the Templars, otherwise the King of France won't let it go ahead. He needed to keep the Pope on side as well. Edward had got problems in Scotland. His father had tried to conquer Scotland. Scotland was in a state of civil war at this point, and the Pope so far had not acknowledged. Robert Bruce as King of Scotland. If Edward, however, shows himself to be difficult, the Pope might decide that it would be a good idea to acknowledge Robert Bruce as King of Scotland, which Edward doesn't want to happen. And also, Edward's nobles are not happy with him. They were fed up with his father, who'd ruled strongly, and had taxed them. And now Edward II was King, and they thought, at last, we want to be able to have a voice in the government. But Edward II does not give them a voice in the government. He is only taking advice from his best friend, Piers Gaveston. A very respectable knight from Gascony. And Edward owes enormous amounts of money. So when anyone gives him any money, he gives it to Piers Gaveston, presumably to look after because they can't get after Piers Gaveston. He'd arrested one of his father's ministers, the Bishop of Coventry, who'd been royal treasurer, and confiscated all his money and given that to Piers Gaveston. So he has problems with his nobles who don't like him, don't like the way he's using his money. So again, he needs as many friends as he can. So he he can't afford to stand up against the Pope. So in the end, very reluctantly, he arrested the Templars. But he sent out instructions to his sheriffs. They were to be arrested, but they were to be kept in good conditions. They could take comforts with them. They could have their servants... The master of the temple, who was locked up in Canterbury Castle, which is a very nice castle, was told he could go out and about the town with a couple of Templars with him. He had to have a guard and he couldn't go outside the city, but he wasn't under restraint. And a number of individuals came forward. The Bishop of Durham came forward and said he'd go bail for the Grand Commander in England. And another, one of the lords of Northern England um, came forward and said, I'll go bail for the Grand Commander in Yorkshire. And that was fine. No problems. Let them out of prison. If they really believed in England, these people were dangerous heretics, they wouldn't have let them go. But how did that resolve itself? Well, for a long time, very little happened at all. The king collects, well, the king's sheriffs collect the money from the Templars' estates. The Templars are paid a pension. Um, Some of them are allowed to go out wandering around. They're not kept in prison. Then the Pope started to put on the pressure again because he was under pressure from the King of France, saying, you've got to lock the Templars up. And he'd sent the list of charges. You must try the Templars according to these charges. I'll send you two inquisitors to do it. But the inquisitors didn't come. They didn't turn up until September 1309. The inquisitors, they expected to be able to torture the Templars. But torture was not a method of inquiry used in the British Isles. And when the inquisitors said they wanted to torture the Templars to get the truth, they were told they couldn't two reasons it's against the law and the other one we haven't got any torturers anyway <laughs> they did not torture people not at this stage I mean later in the middle ages it was introduced to deal with the Lollards mm. the heretical group at the beginning of the 15th century but at this time they didn't use it at all and the church courts the church councils that met to discuss the Templar's case during the course of the trial kept saying well we really must get torturers in because we've got to resolve this and obviously they're not going to confess unless they're tortured but the king wasn't prepared to allow them to torture And so no torture could happen. And even if they did get the king's consent, which they did eventually, there still wasn't anyone prepared to do it. So in fact, it's not until the very end of the trial in the British Isles, the end of June 1311, that we start to see the sort of confessions we saw in France with people saying, yes, these charges are true. Yes, I did this. Yes, I did that. But I confessed afterwards and was absolved and did my penance. And I did not confess this because I was tortured which usually means that they have been tortured in fact and indeed at the end of the trial proceedings from the British Isles it says we used every method, every form of force to make the Templars confess which again is an indication that they were tortured but not until the very end.
5: So the upshot is that eventually the Templars do get tortured and, uh, and, and thus the, the, the crimes are, 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 are made fair against them and, and, and the, the order is disbanded.
4: Well, three of the Templars in the British Isles confessed under torture. It seems they only tortured the three people they were fairly certain they could get something out of. None of the others were tortured, and there's only those three confessions.
2: Mm.
4: Apart from that, there was a lot of third-party evidence, which is extremely sketchy, without places, dates, names, rumour. I heard this from a friend who heard it from somebody who heard it in a churchyard somewhere. It's not quite I got this from a man down the pub, but it's sort of the medieval equivalent there. Right. I wondered about this evidence for a long time, until I found published in the a register of the Archbishop of York, the letter he sent out to his clergy telling them to investigate what outsiders had to say about the Templars. And because they couldn't get the Templars to confess to anything, they had to fall back on rumour. So anybody who had anything to do about the Templars was liable to get hauled into court and told, tell us everything we know about you know about the Templars and if you don't know anything about the Templars or you claim not to, we will suspect that you're heretics too which put people in a difficult position mm. because if they didn't know anything well they'd have to make something up which clearly is what they did and some of these stories are extremely unlikely one dark night a young man got out of bed and crept through the corridors in terror until he reached the door from which behind he could hear terrible cries coming, peering through the, pigeon, the keyhole he saw strange figures lit by candlelight and a terrible scream as a man died and you think yes, and then it says, and he, and this was heard from a man who heard it from a woman who knew somebody who was vaguely connected with the house, and you think
5: yes. So let's let's move on to the end. What what happens? What, how how does how does the uh, the whole case resolve itself?
4: Well, they've got the three confessions. They've got a, a re- summary report based largely on the third party evidence, and the church councils meet. They read the report. They asked the Templars whether they were prepared to confess to anything apart from the three had already confessed, and they said no, but they were happy to deny that it had anything to do with heresy. They were happy to swear it off, abjure. So they were given an abjuration, a swearing-off statement, which said, I utterly reject all heresy, and they all said this. All except for two, the Grand Commander in England and a visiting Grand Commander, the Grand Commander of Auvergne who wasn't in France, he was in England when the arrest happened. And those two refused to even abjure because they said, we had, we never got involved in any heresy, so why should we swear it off? We never had anything to do with it. It's just, uh, it's simply ridiculous. You can't make us do this. So they were sent back to prison. But the others were sent off to monasteries to do penance. The historian Alan Forey has remarked that this was penance for things that they hadn't done
5: That was Helen J. Nicholson, whose book, The Knights Templar on Trial, is published by the History Press. Now, before we go, Rob, tell us what are the big history happenings in the month ahead. Well,
3: firstly, all of this month there's going to be a festival taking place in London, celebrating the history of the capital city. Events are going to include a joust, a film weekend, a walking weekend, and a Tudor flotilla along the Thames to mark the 500th anniversary of Henry VIII's accession to the throne. High times in London. What else? Well, yep. Secondly, there's been a lot of exhibitions about Darwin so far this year. But one with a rather unusual slant is Endless Forms, opening at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge on the 16th of June. That looks at how Darwin's theories impacted on the artists of the day and apparently had a really big impact.
5: A Cambridge curiosity. What else?
3: Um, Yes, finally, a major exhibition opened on the 30th of May at Birmingham Museum all about the great industrialist Matthew Bolton, who died 200 years ago. They've got a larger number of his personal effects on show and entry is completely free. It's running until the 27th of September and if that whets your appetite for the Industrial Revolution we've got a big feature about it in the next issue.
5: Yes, indeed we have. Thanks, Rob. Now, remember, all of what we've been talking about here and a whole lot more is covered in detail in the June issue of the magazine which is on sale right now.
3: And we'd love to get your feedback on the podcast and the magazine. To help us canvas your views, we've set up a readers' panel. It's very easy to become a panellist. Just go to panel.bbcmagazines.com and follow the instructions.
5: That's it. Thanks for listening. In the second of our two podcasts this month, we'll have interviews on the suffragettes and Thomas Paine. I implore you to tune in.